0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Taiba Badul, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our guest, Dr. Sana Alemia. Dr. Alemia is an assistant professor at the Al-Khan University's Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilization. Her work focuses on migration, surveillance, and urbanity. On today's episode, Sana joins us for a conversation on her new book, Refugee Cities, How Afghans Changed Urban Pakistan, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2022. Hello, Sana. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much to invite me along. Pleasure to be here.
0: Before we dive into the book itself, could you kindly share a bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and study, and if there were formative events that shaped your aspirations to be an academic, and how did you come to the project that led to this book?
1: Well, I think it's an interesting and always complicated question of where one is from in many ways. Um, and it also depends on who's asking the question and in what settings we are. We are, For example, in, in Pakistan, I'm often referred to either as Kashmiri um, or perhaps half Arab because of my father's family or sometimes a UK, wali, somebody from London. Um, and in the UK, a context where I did grow up, um, as well as Pakistan, I'm often referred to as Pakistani, but I identify myself and am in legal terms both from Pakistan and also from the UK, specifically from London. And I grew up in London um, and I also grew up a little bit also in Pakistan, specifically in Lahore, and was always trans, you know, moving between these two cities and moving between these two spaces in somewhat of a transnational way. In Ways in which many folks from diaspora do, um, and I, and I think part of my decision to study Afghans in Pakistan was perhaps shaped very much by my status as a, as a migrant myself. Certainly not somebody who's been displaced under very difficult circumstances through war and conflict, as well as ecological disaster. But certainly, as somebody who lives lives almost in a way on the borders of various societies of being included and also excluded. Um, I never planned on being an academic, it wasn't on the agenda. I never had in my mind that I would go to university and you know become a um, professional academic. Actually, when I was um, making the decision to do the PhD, it was kind of to try and use it in a in a way that would allow me to have some status and some ins into being able to do work within the context of Pakistan, South Asia, Afghanistan as well, um, as a way to access certain spheres and certain um, areas that I wanted to work in. So academia wasn't really on the agenda. It wasn't that I had a plan. I kind of fell fell into it. I think many of us end up falling into it, somehow getting interested and intrigued in certain topics. And part of the reason and the rationale for focusing on uh, this particular story that I chose to for this book, and some of my doctoral work was also centering on this, but also in my postdoctoral work I also focused on this, was a desire to um, understand people's histories, to understand histories from below, and how they shape and affect societies and states, and to kind of search for these hidden stories that we don't necessarily always see in grand narratives of state making or grand narratives of modernity or grand narratives of um, progress so to speak and part of that is probably shaped by my own formative experiences where i often found myself asking well where is my position where is our position in the grand histories that we're often told by the state, be it the European former colonial state, or be it even by our post-colonial state that seems to be dominated by a number of elites. And the search to write for a people's history wasn't necessarily a search to write my own people's histories, but perhaps people's histories who have been forgotten in the context in which I was familiar. So that is Pakistan. And that was perhaps one of the inspirations or the reasons or the rationale for why I chose this topic. As somebody who, you know, we would often fly into Karachi, for example, as children when we would be we returning back. I did a bit of schooling in Itra and Lahore as well. So, but we would always fly into Karachi because at that time it was the only major international airport in Pakistan, and we would then go on elsewhere to, you know, uh, Lahore or to Islamabad or wherever it may be that we were staying. But always, what I found interesting about my work my time, sorry, in Garaji as a child and as a teenager is the apartment block that my khala used to live in. It's in Clifton, so quite a wealthy neighborhood, but the apartment block she lived in itself was home to more lower middle class and potentially some middle class folks as well across different ethnicities as well as nationalities. And I used to find in that apartment block Pashtuns from Pakistan, Afghan nationals, some of whom were Pashtun, others were Hazara ethnicity, um, Somali, Palestinian, Punjabi, Sindhi, Baloch, all within this big apartment complex. Um, and we used to see how folks would live together side by side, not necessarily without tensions, there could be, um, often over parking spaces or someone's child making a noise, the regular tensions that emerge through the rhythms of day-to-day life. But there was none of what I was getting in terms of um, it, what I often found in mainstream narratives that were depicting migrants such as Afghans in quite negative terms or even discourse as in framing Afghan migrants and quite negatively within this apartment block. I was like, oh, but the story seems to be quite different within this apartment block or within local neighbourhoods or within family, friends. And it was that trigger combined with personalized experiences of being a racialized migrant who is not from a middle-class or bourgeois background, even though I've kind of entered that status um, now through the process of my own upward social mobility that comes with parts and parts of the privilege of entering the academic world, but my own initial formative experiences as a child or for my own family, which were not very privileged, um, but we're certainly privileged in the sense of being in London, but where you are a racialized migrant yourself, made me question how it was that Afghans were constructed, depicted, and debated within the context of Pakistan on two levels. One, within the media, um, and sometimes Pakistani media, newspapers, discourse, could often frame Afghan nationals in quite negative terms, as well as discourses within a kind of Punjabi-centric Um, elite where you know you would often find tropes about Afghan nationals being peddled out Mm -hmm. in day-to-day language and day-to-day discourse and so part of my desire to engage with this project was to kind of find out actually well you know I was following a bit of an intuition I was like well this doesn't sound right it doesn't sit right something seems off about this let's see what we can find out. Um, And that's really what the motivation was to delve into this topic. I had also wanted to do people's history on another topic where I am rooted and related to, and that's the Kashmir context. But the security and the surveillance of that region and being able to even contemplate doing work on that region was so impossible. So I thought, okay, I will do something and focus on a topic that I can access and I can do, you know, we often forget this part of research, like we, f- we can't just jump into any site and be anywhere. But what I wanted to do was to focus on somewhere where I know I, you know, I mean, I had plenty of surveillance myself in the end, it stands out, but I wanted to be somewhere where I knew I could um, access field sites or be located safely within a family context almost, because actually as a young woman at the time when I was doing my field work, those Networks and stability of a family home, or a family friends home, or somewhere where you're living and staying, become very important to how we do our research. Certainly, as a woman who was at the time, you know, um, you know, young and unmarried, and you want to go out and do fieldwork in all of these various sites. So those questions also shaped my decisions to engage in fieldwork in the context of of Pakistan as well. Real practical kind of configurations, right, you're thinking
0: of. Super interesting, and I'm just so curious uh, to learn over the di- over our conversation how these different factors have shaped uh, this book and the analysis that you present in it. Uh, what is the key message that you hope readers will take away from this book? I
1: think there are, there are probably a few messages, but one of the key messages that I want to have readers leave with is this idea of how it is that migrants or non-citizens particularly, and rather specifically from low income backgrounds, make the city and how they transform the city. How it is that those urban underclasses are not on the margins of the city, but are in fact integral to the making of it. That we cannot imagine cities in My book in the context of Pakistan, but also other cities across the world, whether it is in within um, India, whether it's within Europe, we cannot imagine the building of cities without having a position and a space for migrants within it and specifically migrants of lower income backgrounds. Um, you know, of course, Marx and Engels write about the Irish working class, and they write about the Irish migrant working class as being integral to the industrial development of Britain. And you know that that was is something that I want readers to to leave this book with, of trying to understand the position of the ways in which migrants make cities. It's an ad, an attempt to write a history, Um, of migration in Pakistan, which is almost silenced and forgotten and actually is not really discussed in many ways within scholarship. So that's what I want to kind of bring in to the debate and into the discourse. Um, And I also want to tell at the same time another story, which is also of how it is that geopolitics shapes the ordinary lives of people. This is also an attempt to try to tell the story or to try to sell a un, a narrative of how it is that these grand wars that we often hear about and that are very written about, and in fact, overwritten about, in terms of the Soviet-Afghan war, the uh, rise of the Taliban and the war on terror. These are books that have actually swathes of militarized literature that are often produced in the Anglophone world, but also the Francophone world. and and, and Germanic-speaking world about these particular great wars, but they don't really tell us the story of what it is ha- what's happening on the ground to ordinary people. Um, they don't tell us how it is that geopolitics affects people on the day-to-day basis. And for me, politics is not just at the high level. I don't believe that politics just takes place at the diplomatic level where states are fighting and there are military interventions taking place. Geopolitics is also shaped by folks on the ground and also impacts folks on the ground. And so the question for me is what does that look like? How can we understand international relations from below? And how can we also understand that these, how geopolitics affects peoples in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think about? Um, and I'm very cognizant of kind of making sure that. I wanted, you know, I want those stories to kind of come through. So the book is telling, you know, it fits across different disciplines. In a way, it fits across the disciplines of trying to understand urban, um, an urban history of Pakistan and the space of migrants and Afghans within it. And it's also trying to tell at the same time a story of geopolitics and how that affects and shapes people's day-to-day lives.
0: And that's one of the key things that I really appreciate about Both the methods that you use and the analysis that you present in this book is this focus on the micro histories amidst these meta level political narratives. We see this right at the start in the preface with the story of engineer Abdulaziz, whose life trajectory is shaped in various ways by the geopolitical climate and the place his family comes to live in. In the first instance, his entire family and village are forced to migrate to Pakistan in the aftermath of the Soviet invasion and build their place. In the refugee camp, in the second instance, the U.S. war on terror perpetuates these geopolitical dynamics such that the Pakistani state continues to provide temporary settlement to Afghan refugees without promising rightful or permanent citizenship. Could you perhaps say a bit more about why did you decide to forefront these life stories in your analysis and then what these stories tell us about Afghan refugees in Pakistan?
1: I think that's a really... um... It's an important question, it's also it's funny, the story of Engineer Aziz, um, I was debating where to place the story, and I just found it such an important and moving story. But there were many stories that, of course, in the process of writing, we aren't able to include. But I felt that his story kind of spoke to a wider point I was trying to make. Um, I think I chose to forefront these stories for a number of reasons. First of all, of course, as an academic and as a researcher and somebody who's not Afghan, I understand that there is a burden on me as a Pakistani researcher to try to be able to A, decenter myself from the stories that I'm trying to listen to, but B, also try to understand and make space for really important voices that somehow seem to be left out of the ways in which we imagine the Afghan story in Pakistan. And I was very cognizant of, throughout the research process of listening to stories and wanting for them to be able to tell us a story about geopolitics rather than to not foreground them and to have it um, have... um, almost a book taking on a life in it itself where I'm trying to please an academic audience. And I'm very clear that this is an academic book and as an academic who works in an institution and I get my salary from an, from an academic institution, I understand my own position within this space of intellectual production is one in which I benefit in terms of career progression and the like. So I always want to be conscious of how we are implicated in systems of power within academia, even when we are engaged in a project that may be progressive in political terms, as well as intellectual terms. And at the same time, whilst we're conscious of this, I think um, And because I'm particularly conscious of this, I also feel that it's imperative to kind of have the stories of the folks that I'm engaged with be the ones that are foregrounded rather than my own kind of intellectual exercise of performativity for the academy that sometimes we feel pressurized to engage with. And I really hope and have tried with the book to foreground as much as possible the voices of folks from below, whilst bringing in important facts in, and forms of data and forms of analysis, which is the role of the academic, it is the role of the intellectual, is to try to make sense of these things that are happening. There is, It's not just that I'm not completely cynical that we have no role and we're just purely extractive in, in what we're doing. We have a role, right? And I do try to bring that and weave that together. But I think how you tell a story is also very important to as well as to the content and the message of what it is that you're trying to get across so foregrounding folks like engineer aziz or foregrounding folks um, who live in um camp in, in in the later chapters of the book or foregrounding folks who are living in other refugee camps or informal housing settlements is important because I also feel that that's where the intellectual work is. That's where you learn something. That's really where I learned a lot of things that I was not getting um, from books or from these mainstream narratives around Afghanistan and Pakistan and refugees and migration, all of these tropes that we've become so familiar with. I think it becomes an incredibly important intellectual exercise to listen to other folks, to try to make sense of what's happening, but also just you will learn something. I had absolutely... Um, you know, no idea to the depth of what I would be learning from folks was, but I'm, you know, I'm very humbled by it. And I'm still humbled and quite embarrassed, actually, by the fact that I have, you know, by the fact that I've written this book, because actually it compares, you know, it's nothing in comparison to what folks actually know, live and experience. And there's only a certain justice, amount of justice I'll be able to do in this intellectual work. And I hope that it's, uh, it, it does make some mark in, in, in that regard.
0: Absolutely. I think that's part of uh, the journey that we are on. Uh, one of the things that also brought, uh, that I was provoked by in the book, is this this idea of quasi-belonging that Afghans in Pakistan face. And one of the key points that you write about is the Pakistani state's failure to recognize and award the legal status to Afghan refugees, yet these Afghan populations are deeply enmeshed in a process of placemaking in the cities that they come to live in. How does your analysis contribute to the existing conceptions of refugee experiences and urban belongings? And how do you think uh, the encounters that you've had in your, through your fieldwork sort of destabilize the notions um, of what in the Afghan refugee experience is in urban Pakistan?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's probably a number of layers to this. I think, firstly, I think that having a legal status and a form of legal belonging in the current system of the modern nation state in which we operate is often very important in terms of providing one with a sense of security and being able to access a whole host of political, social, cultural, economic rights. Um, And of course, Afghans within Pakistan, for the most part, and across various ethnicities, haven't been given this status by the Pakistani government since the 1970s, 1980s. There are some folks who may have informally sought access to this, but for the most part, most folks are not Pakistani citizens. And that creates a real sense of insecurity for the folks who remain within the country and who have decided that Pakistan is the place that they are going to stay, or they have been staying, and they have been living and have had first, second, third generation, now folks being born in the country so it creates an incredible sense of precarity not to have a legal status and that's why I kind of choose this term quasi belonging because it creates an incredible sense of precarity and then on the other side of course these folks have been living within cities and there are of course many who also live within rural areas but my focus is on cities and they have over this period of you know 30 years, 40 years, created real sense of placemaking in the cities and the localities and the neighbourhoods of which they're a part. And they do have a sense of community amongst the folks that they live with, which includes Pakistani citizens of various ethnicities in Karachi, certainly, but also in Peshawar as well. And this quasi belonging, I think, in terms of what refugee studies, um, you know, what can this tell us about refugees and experiences of urban belonging? I think what the book really tries to do is, I think I'm very, I'm conscious of understanding that many Afghans within Pakistan, and even the folks who I worked with, I didn't find many folks who were comfortable to say that they were Pakistani. Like the nation itself is so exclusionary, it's so jingoistic, um, and it is racist and discriminatory towards Afghans, both in the legal sense and also in the discursive sense and in sense of kind of material implications for day-to-day lives. But folks were willing to and did quite clearly articulate an expression of belonging to the city and to the localities and to the neighborhoods of what they're part. And they also had connections to, in many cases, Afghanistan, both in a sense of an idea of Afghanistan for the folks who hadn't lived there in an emotive and ineffective sense of the nation state. And in some cases, folks, of course, clearly have translocal connections and translocal lives across those borders. So I feel that the contribution that this work is trying to make to conceptions of refugee experiences and urban belonging is to not necessarily just picture refugees as being citizens or non-citizens, but also having this urban citizenship. And they develop that themselves and within the communities that they live within, as well as their neighbors, many of whom may be citizens and other non-citizens as well. And that's kind of the key kind of um, finding that I find with the folks that I worked with. They were very happy to refer to themselves as from Karachi, you know. Many times people were like, no, no, I'm from Karachi, right? You know, and, and clearly articulating at the same time an attachment to Afghanistan or a village that they may have been from in Afghanistan. Um, but you know, I worked with families who moved from Karachi, and I, and I think I include some, in, I include one in the book who moved from Karachi back to um, Afghanistan and back to their province, and they kind of just came back because they're like, no, no, we're from Karachi. But that didn't negate their Afghan identity per se, in terms of what they felt effectively. Um, but it also expresses clearly that they do have an urban identity, and people possess multiple identities across these translocal forms. Um, and I sometimes think of my own example. I'm very keen of. I, I'm very happy to say that I'm from London, um, but I'm not very happy to say I'm British. <laughs> so, so you know, you know, so so I, I perhaps draw a little bit on own lived experiences, but also as well as the voices that I was uh, listening to.
0: Also, something that our readers uh, that our listeners might be interested in hearing is how did you sort of come to Karachi and Peshawar, where you conduct most of. This, uh, the fieldwork for this book, and what were some of the key events, rationales, or motivations that brought you to the different refugee camps, the informal settlements, and the various neighborhoods where you conducted your primary fieldwork, and uh, how, do, how do these reasons differ between these two cities?
1: Yeah, I think... Um... It's interesting. I mean, I actually, I think I wanted to do more cities. I actually also wanted to do quetta in Balochistan but for security reasons and also because I just didn't have um, a place to stay in quetta I was not brave enough to do kind of Total outsider research and just parachute into a city that I, frankly speaking, am not familiar with and don't have connections and networks to. So I wasn't very comfortable to do that. Whereas in the other settings, I had network existing networks or networks that I was comfortable in, um, social networks and the like to kind of navigate the field in that way. So I was happy to do that in those kind of um, in in those settings, um, but the reasons. Um, for kind of why um, I was remembering actually um, the very the late wonderful Mariam Abu Zahab who wrote um, extensively on political Islam, um, French academic. I remember hearing her once in 2010 saying that when it comes to studying Afghans, um, there needs to be work done on Karachi. And I think I was already underway on my fieldwork then, and I felt really reassured that somebody was such a such a generous intellectual was making this point. And that's intuitively what I felt is, you know, Garaji is actually very understudied in the already limited academic discussion of the position of Afghans within Pakistan. The natural site of study often in policy work, so particularly in the archives that I looked at from the 19. 19- late 1970s and 1980s, tended to focus on two cities, that would be Goida and Peshawar, because that's where most of Afghan refugee camps were in the post-Soviet-Afghan, or during the Soviet-Afghan conflict. And intuitively, from my own experiences, I thought Karachi would be a very important site to include, because for me, Karachi is also an Afghan city, as well as a number of other ethnic and national groups. And that was the motivation and the rationale for kind of working in Karachi. And Peshawar also, of course, becomes almost a natural field site because there are one in five Afghans, one in five of Peshawar's residents, even today, are Afghan nationals, predominantly Pashtuns, with a smaller minority of other ethnic groups and identities. And that was perhaps the rationale and the logic. But I didn't know if the two would be able to have a conversation with each other. I didn't know if those two cities to do a comparative case or to, and it ends up not being a comparative case apart from some small reflections in one of the chapters, but it's not necessarily a comparative case. But the logic of including these two cities, I thought was important because this is an important way of telling um, stories about how different cities within the, within the context of Pakistan are made and um, by Afghan migrants. And then, in terms of like why I chose certain field sites and how I chose certain field sites, you know i did particularly during um you know a lot of the foundations for the work that I would go on in to do were during this period of twenty ten twenty eleven twenty twelve and then I would repeat and do other visits in twenty fifteen sixteen twenty seventeen and eighteen but a lot of the foundations were built during an earlier period of my field research where I spent significant amounts of time mapping the city and trying to figure out what story I wanted to tell. Um, Initially, um, it's about building trust, familiarity, regularity within the field sites of which you're working. And also, you know, to be frank, Afghan populations, both in refugee camps and in formal housing areas in cities across Pakistan, including Bashar Karachi, but also Quetta um, and Islamabad, are often under significant amounts of surveillance by uh, the Pakistani state and intelligence services. So, part of being able to do field work is also about navigating the bureaucracy and the state surveillance apparatus of where it is that you're able to do field work. I was very clear that I kind of had to make myself known to authorities that I'm going to be doing field research in these different sites because I knew that the, you know, the, the bogeyman of the ISI may turn up or may appear and the like. So part of the reasons, and when initially what I did was a mapping of the city. Sometimes I would do it individually. A lot of the time I would do it with interlocutors. Sometimes I would do it with friend, friends. It was about building up networks with folks and organisers, as well as um, institutions and actors, both governmental and also non-governmental, and also with the folks, including who were working with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, to build up a network to find out what areas I perhaps would like to focus on. Very serendipitously, in Campemaruruib, which is not its real name. I mean, that's that's perhaps the one of the most. You know, I I chose for consistency purposes not to name any area, um, but mainly because not Reed's status is not particularly vulnerable when compared to the other ones, um, but um, but in that particular area, very serendipitously. It turned out that the folks that I had gone to initially, I'd been introduced to that area through somebody who had been working with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees and Government of Pakistan. Who were like, "Okay, you should check out this area." Um, so I went on a formal visit through with these folks, and it turns out. And I took my uncle, I took my khalu and my khala with me, you know, because actually, I, you know, I'm in my at that point time, I'm in my 20s and a young woman, and um, I was like, "Okay, let's do this in in this way." And it turned out my halu, who was a Kashmiri carpet trader, knew all of the folks in the in the camp because he'd worked with them before. And it was just completely by luck and by chance. I'm like, oh, we know you. You know, you're that Kashmiri person from this, this, this and, and so on. And that happened. And that kind of allowed me to not be seen as some odd body or government you know, I have my own power nexus that I embody as a person, as, as a researcher. But it was also a sense of familiarity that allowed me, for example, in that context, to be able to work there. And I myself, um, you know, it comes down to real practicalities of where you're going to do research. I was living in one end of the city, needed to get into the other end of the city. Do I trust folks to get me there? How will I get to that place um, I knew for example that there was a medical camp that was being run by a leprosy center and every certain days they would go from quite close to where I was living to that area. So I was like, Okay, I have access to this area. I didn't have the money or the funds actually for a private car Mm -hmm. and for a driver. So I was like, Okay, I will just hop on with this hospital van and every you know, a couple of days of the week, get up early seven o'clock in the morning and be on that bus. And that's where I'll do my field research. Often the times of where we do the field research and in my context, because I wasn't working with a particular organisation, a political organisation, I wasn't working with a particular institution more about trying to navigate the field through these um, serendipitous kind of like um, encounters, if you will. So that's certainly something that... um, shaped how I did my fieldwork and similarly in um, Peshawar, a lot of the times the fieldwork that I initially did um, was kind of through this, you know, making connections, making networks and trying to figure out what field sites are interesting. And then I found visiting or revisiting one particular field site to be quite a useful way of building up an idea about a particular location. But doing... But I also did lots of work in different localities as well. And I think that was also an important way of understanding how the city works and functions. You really understand space in a completely different way when you are traveling to different locations across the city. You really understand inequality much more by moving from areas of privilege and wealth and material infrastructures that are so much more sustained and present because of the presence of the state, When you move from areas to area so initially i was really frustrated by the ways in which i had to like i'm like oh my god i'm like getting in a rickshaw or i'm getting in a in a bus or i'm getting in something and i'm you know like and it's taking me like i'm traveling two or three hours every day um and then i realized actually that's the way in which i'm learning something about the inequality the fact that i'm going from this you know area where you have Generally speaking, you have running water and you have electricity, not always. And I'm moving from this area where you have shops and medical facilities and the thing like, and then I'm moving and traveling like a couple of hours to like an hour and a half or something to another end of town, became a really important way of understanding these spatial inequalities, infrastructural inequalities, um, you know, class inequalities and how they are um, and what that means in terms of how temporality is different for lower income folks, how temporality is different for lower income folks, how the pace of life is a lot, you know, is is very different as well. So it was a really important kind of way of understanding how the city itself works and it's gross inequalities, frankly. Um, But that's kind of how the journey of doing field work came across. Um, And it was actually also through those processes of movements in the city and understanding roads and infrastructures and how they work and, and how gender works, who is able to move, when, how, and how are they are not able to move, became a crucial part of how I understood the latter part of the book, which examines surveillance, um, racial discrimination, racial profiling, that it is that many Afghan nationals, across different ethnicities would face in cities in pakistan both in peshawar context as well as in Karachi. it was that was something that i hadn't foreseen that i would be studying i kind of went along and i was very much influenced by the works of folks who were writing on urban informality at the time including the works of asif bayat and of course the brilliant mike davis and I really wanted to, to tell a story about urban informality and what it looks like and how folks build up the city. The idea that I was going to engage in a, in a subject that would focus on racial profiling, discrimination and identity cards or, or check point, checkpoints was not something that I had envisioned. Perhaps because within the context of Pakistan, I'm not a racialized body myself per se and, and haven't lived that as an experience. So that's an ignorance on my part. But when I was working in the city and traveling across the city, I was like, wow, <laughs> Like, you cannot ignore this as a central part of the Afghan story across ethnic groups and sometimes even across class lines um to what it means to live in Pakistan. The discrimination that folks were facing in the context of the war on terror, where an Afghan bogeyman was very, very useful to discourse within media outlets within the state, as well as a longer history of anti Bashtun and anti Afghan sentiment, you know, becomes a central part of understanding the story. And also the shifts that take place from the nineteen eighties to the two thousands. And I think that that's how we allowed the field to speak to us, or we allow what we're seeing to, to speak to us. Part of what I wanted to do was to engage then in a the process of witnessing um, and contextualizing what I was witnessing and analyzing that the act of witnessing and understanding the structural factors behind it. And that came from purely from the fieldwork that I was doing. And and it's I think the point that I want to emphasize is that it was those experiences of mobility and punctuated mobility and of the parts of fieldwork that we don't think are fieldwork became integral to the entire process of my intellectual understanding of the um, and human understanding, to be frank, of the, of the story of Afghans, particularly from lower income backgrounds um, in, in Pakistan.
0: The question of uh, juxtaposing formality and formality, formality, whether it is in the case of housing, access to services such as water or educational opportunities and even basic human rights. And with this, how did this narrative of insaniat humanity and Haku human rights that you reflect upon in the book, how does this address the gap between institutionalization of human rights at one end and the lived experiences and the various injustices that are faced on the ground on the other end?
1: I think what was very clear for the folks that I worked with of this separation of there is you know it's a, it's an academic debate the separation of the formal and the informal right you don't have folks using that language of we live in a formal area and this is an informal area there's a different localized vernacular that is used to describe um, you know in an informal area and in a, and and um, a formal area but people do kind of understand that these are all part of the city, they're all part of Peshawar, they're all part of Karachi as a city Um, and what I wanted to kind of tease out um, through these examples was the understanding of how the two are co constituted of each other how it is that the formal areas and the formal spaces of the city cannot work and cannot function without the informal. They are both the same sides of the same coin. You know, they're both two sides of the same coin. Um, It is those folks who are living in these informal areas who are effectively allowing other folks to live a middle class or an elite lifestyle. They are the cheap labour that serves the city. They are the cheap labor that literally, in the case of Hayatabad in Peshawar, they literally built the city um, in case of informal uh, Afghans who are living in informal parts of the city. They literally built it. And they're two parts of the same story, and you cannot account for that uh, success, for example, that Hayatabad is considered in architectural terms and in urban planning within discourse, within the city, without accounting for the position of those who are coming from informal areas. And on the one hand, you have, I think people were very cognizant of the fact that they wanted political rights as well as human rights that would be given to them by the state. Folks understand that the state has political power. They have wealth, they have money, and it is their responsibility to look after the populations that reside within its territory whether they are citizens or non-citizens. this was There was no lack of clarity on that from many of the people that I interacted with. There was a very clear politicized understanding of what their conditions um, were and why they were in the way that they were. There was no kind of, you know, this is our fault, you know, we should be living in informal housing areas and, and there was none of this. This was, you know, like, you know, we've been failed by the state of, The government of pakistan in being able to deliver us basic resources basic services utilities water gas electricity sanitation healthcare and the like and we have been failed by international institutions such as the united nations high commission for refugees who often preach a language of human rights and would allow us and would like us to have to claim that they are um, providing us with these rights but no, they're not the ones who are providing these rights with us. In fact, what we have to do—this is, you know, to to paraphrase from the from the book—what we have to do is we have to be able to provide these rights to each other um, ourselves, right? So there was this clear understanding that the institutionalized rights that they wished they had and they knew is they knew was the responsibility of the state as well as international institutions, particularly in the Afghan case where international institutions have often been quite heavy in the, um, the claims to what they have done for the Afghan cause, particularly in the 1980s, where it was um, politicized in terms of Cold War geopolitics. Folks were very conscious of that, but they were conscious of the, and they were conscious that they've been failed in the rights that they are due, both in terms of human rights and also in terms of political rights. And they were very conscious of the fact that they would be the ones and they had to be the ones that would work to try to secure these rights for themselves. Um, And this is what local community mobilisation and organisation was about. It was about kind of, you know, in trying to get access to sewage lines or trying to get access to water. It's about these are basic human rights that we deserve, that we need. We will get them for ourselves and we'll try our very best to try and get them ourselves. And often, you know, The solutions are half-baked. They're not particularly good. It's not like that they're a panacea. This is not, by any means, this is not something to be romanticized, the solutions that folks come up with. But it was kind of, these were actions of need, of a must, that, you know, you have to try and get access to uh, safe and clean drinking water. You have to try and mobilize the folks around you. Because if you don't, you're not going to be supported by state actors. You're not going to be supported by international institutions. And... To be quite frank and to be quite blunt, in many cases, you're not also going to be supported in many cases, particularly for Afghan refugees, but also for internally displaced folks. A lot of the times the people weren't supported by progressive forces and progressive activists who may be operating in the city. And part of that is perhaps to do with the fact that a lot of the times, and, you, and I have seen that change, um, but part of that is to do with the fact that there is an unfamiliarity within certain activist circles with the afghan position within cities um, and part of it is also just you know good old discrimination that we must always reflect on ourselves and I include myself in this this is not a finger pointing kind of exercise we must always question why it is that you know certain groups haven't been looked at by political and activist circles and this was certainly something that was always felt by the communities in which i was working like who is going to help us which political progressive party is going to help us. I don't think anyone's going to help us because a lot of the times, you know, they would be saying, oh, no, this is a matter for the UN. But, you know, when folks have been living in the country for 30, 40 years, I don't think it is just a matter for the UN. And people were also cognizant of that. So um, in light of these various failings, people push, as they must, to try to redistribute rights as best as they can for themselves. So these levels of insanity and insanity in um, are being claimed by folks for themselves and are rejecting, um, consciously rejecting, um, the categories and the boxes that they're put into and the material deprivations that they are
0: subject to. What were some of the key forms of solidarities that you found, and in what ways? did these also shift over the course of both perhaps the fieldwork itself, but also in following up um, in later years as you were writing the book?
1: Yeah, I think what I was always astounded by is that I always took hope from the ways in which folks arranged and organized solidarity amongst local communities. And they often did this outside of kinship networks, and they would do this across kind of like nationalities and also in many cases across ethnicities. And um, and you would see, you know, deep friendships between, in Peshawar, for example, you have deep friendships in some of the localities that I was working with, or folks who've, went to sc- who've gone to school together, who've grown up on the same street, who may be an Afghan Pashtun and a Pakistani Pashtun and not from the same, you know, there's a linguistic familiarity, but, you know, there's a tendency within discourse in Pakistani circles that are non-Pashtun to kind of lump Pashtuns into all one category. But of course, there are many different, you know, just different um, different accents, different tribes, different localities, the importance of which village you may or emerge from or which city and all, all of these things, of course, affect various forms of identity. So you would see those forms of local solidarity um, that were particularly um, common and also quite moving in terms of how it is that folks um, would try to... Um, work together to come up with a solution. And, you know, one of the examples that I often found like a quite um, important were in cases where there were mass arrests and there have been continuously throughout the 2010s of Afghans within Pakistan, particularly at times when their ID cards that they're issued with um, by the government of Pakistan as well as the United Nations High Commission for Refugees run out, is often people who were trying to get folks out of jail would often be local lawyers who were not necessarily affiliated to any political party, but you'd find local lawyers who were working independently, sometimes working with institutions, but oftentimes people within the local community saying, "Okay, so-and-so's son has been arrested. We need to kind of like go and get them out. And so you'd see that on one level as well, where you would have kind of very organic, localized forms of solidarity emerging, as well as quite useful interventions made by folks who are living within the city, who may be Pakistani nationals, who are trying to improve the conditions of um, access and rights of Afghan nationals. And and each kind of group also varied as well. Um, I do know, for example, that in Karachi, for those Hazaras who were of Ismaili background, there was the institutional support and solidarity of, for example, the Al Rahan network, where folks would try to get folks, uh, folks would try to get others into jobs, and to try to provide some kind of um, sense of um, stability to people's lives. Um, <clears throat> and you know, there was also an amazing, sometimes quite difficult lack of solidarity that you would see. Um, in areas, you know, in, in a Pakistani settlement that I kind of worked in that eventually kind of like got bulldozed down. And this is a case that happens time and time again. You know, Unfortunately for that group, there wasn't solidarity that was able to emerge from outside of the community that could potentially have stopped um, this housing demolition from taking place. So there are many ways in which solidarity initiatives, of course, need to continue to grow, need to continue to build an R because there are folks who are engaged in those real efforts. There's a lot of labor that's involved in it. Um, and it's very easy to critique from the academy of what's happening on the ground. Um, there are, But there are spaces where, that are growing and there are spaces that need to continue to grow. And I think that what I've seen happen during my experience of working on Afghans in Pakistan, I often felt quite isolated because... It like, it feels like within the context of Pakistan, it almost feels like a strange topic to focus on. Everyone's like, wow, you're focusing on Afghans? That's unusual, right? It's a very common thing that I've, I've, I've gotten. Um, and that would be both within the academy and also outside of the academy. What I have seen happen and change in more recent years is particularly for folks who are working on the ground and doing really interesting and important, much more important, political work um, than I can do justice to in in these few minutes. But what I have seen is people, an awareness of, to some degree, (laughs) there's also a complete lack of an awareness, but what I have been encouraged by is by seeing folks who are aware of the implications of the Pakistani state's involvement and interference in Afghanistan and what that's meant for people's lives, and using that as an imperative to engage in more meaningful actions of solidarity when it comes to things like housing demolitions or access to water or security and rights, um, as well as trying to rehouse folks. And I do know that in the post-2021 scenes of evacuations, for example, um, of Afghanistan. Uh, there were folks on the ground in Pakistan who were trying to do important and work to help speed along the process of new waves of folks who were migrating into the country, as well as pre-existing networks of folks who were already doing the work and who were already familiar with these, these transnational movements. But there's much, much more work to be done, and I think that that cannot be forgotten, certainly within the context of Pakistan. So I think it's very important to be able to distinguish between the tiers of solidarity. The tier that I was often most um, inspired by, you know, there's a difference between what's taking place locally, organically, within communities. There is support that can come from institutions that may be tied into particular groups and folks of refugees, migrants, and displaced persons. Then there is the work of political activists, of course, um, and then there's also these solidarity initiatives that can be given within those spaces that we need to kind of account for and, and, and to push for. And, and it is our job to push us to be better, right? Um,
0: yeah. Thank you, Sana. I also wanted to follow up with one more question. Um, at the heart of the solidarity is also this um, technology of what is permissible or surveilled, which is the computerized Pakistani national identity card. And in chapter five, you uh, bring about a really important point on how this is not just a technology of surveillance on who is a Pakistani national, but also a technology and a barrier, a technology of exclusion. Um, Because one of the things the book does is it refutes the general assumption that all Afghans want to return to their territorial homeland or would not want Pakistan citizenship, and this is the part where the book is making both a theoretical intervention on destabilizing the liberal notions of equality and territorial belonging. Um, Could you say more about the potential, the limitations that institutions and states fail to understand and respond along these different needs of refugees?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what I found particularly difficult in the case that I was working on is that there was only one narrative, and that is that Afghans do not belong in Pakistan and want to return home. And that was being peddled very, very heavily by international institutions. And it was also being peddled very heavily by the government of Pakistan, but also the government of Afghanistan, who at the time were very interested in repatriating Afghans. You know, at the peak, there was eight eight million or so Afghans living in Pakistan. So there was a real interest in, Uh, bringing those Afghans back home and I fully support the right of those who want to return to return because many did want to and many do want to and that's something that cannot be ignored Um, it's not the focus of what I was looking at I was looking at those folks 30 40 years who are living within the country and who primarily were staying within the country but the right to return to Afghanistan and to homeland was of course something that was lamented by many of the folks that I worked with particularly those who had grown up and uh, or who had lived in, in in Afghanistan you know this idea of a deep conflict that has taken place within their state and a violent one that has been subject to various interventions by external powers was, new, was very palpable in the discussions that I had with many people and at the same time folks also wanted to remain in the cities of which they were a part and the homes and the lives that they had built up and the ability to access certain resources and rights that they were given in these cities um, that were not available to them in their home country because of conflict and because of war, right? Migrant people who move, you may have emotional attachments to multiple places. And at the same time, you also have the material, you know, when we're talking about drivers of migration, why is it that folks migrate? Sometimes folks migrate because they want to improve and better their lives. Now, you know, many people move to Pakistan and it can be an improvement of their lives as well. And then for many folks, you know, that's the reason and the rationale why, why they moved and why they wanted To stay, and this was a discourse that was forgotten in the era in which I was working, of the 2010s era of you know war and terror, um, and this idea of Afghan repatriation as being the central um, point of focus for policy initiatives to take place, and I kind of found that you know in you know many different stories happen, you know. People remained and wanted to remain within the cities. And this didn't mean necessarily that they're totally and fully felt at home. It didn't mean that they were not subject to discrimination, racism, xenophobia, classism and the like, because folks were, right? And there's a genuine, real sense of frustration that many people felt. And they said, you know what, I'm not taking this anymore. And they left. And they would often leave to other countries. They would not necessarily Afghanistan because of the political instability there or the fact that social networks that they had once had no longer existed there, but would move to other countries, including Europe. Um, and that's where Europe, uh, you know, Australia, Iran, Turkey, all of these other kind of locations. And I think that's often something that gets kind of, um, I guess, gets a little bit forgotten um, within, within the discourse around kind of um, Afghan, the position of Afghans within the country is that how do we kind of write back or understand what it is that, that folks want and how is it that, you know, the discourse and repatriation was something that needed to be to be challenged. And interestingly the surveillance that folks, you know that was what much of the refugee surveillance was about. That was what the introduction of identity cards for Afghans, and actually the identity cards for Afghans were introduced before they were introduced to Pakistanis. And it was done with this idea and this goal that there needs to be a distinction made between the Afghan national and the Pakistani national and it's politics of exclusion. And it was a very powerful form of surveillance that was trying to kind of... Um, that was being managed and, and driven by the governments of Pakistan but also as I said other tripartite partners including the government of Afghanistan and the United Nations and um, so while re- return must be supported especially when it's desired and you want to have the political conditions in which Afghanistan is not in conflict and we need to be able to address those broader factors, the broader structures which, which tell us why the country is in conflict, in which the country of Pakistan and its state apparatus has an Im- important and terribly um, ever-present role in the recent history, as well as broader imperial powers. We need to account for that. It's not that we need to create the conditions where the country is stable. And at the same time, in the context in which we're operating, to change up the discourse around refugees and return, we need to account for the fact that people can be sociologically and are transformed through their lived experiences. You may be born... um, You could be born in, um, you know, you could be born in Paris and you could be born a French national, but throughout your life you may migrate for different reasons and you may have attachments to place that form as a consequence of those movements, as a consequence of those transformations and lived experiences. And it may be that you end up settling in a neighbouring country for, you know, 20 years or 30 years and that you want to remain in that country. And those are the debates that I often felt were left out, particularly at the policy and institutional level, where the goal really was just to kind of encourage repatriation to meet geopolitical needs rather than the actual needs of the peoples on the ground, which were much more varied and nuanced than this discourse of you must return to a territorial homeland um, would have you believe because you know this idea that you can only have one homeland and one place to belong to didn't prove to be true For all of the folks that I was working in. You know, some folks absolutely migrated back, if you will, and were happy and glad to do so. Mm -hmm. You know, I I can go through the lists and folks of folks that I worked with and people did have had to do this and chose to do so. Um but that's not kind of the only story to it. And I'm interested in telling that story. Because there are many people who remain within the country and who will continue to remain in the country and who will not return. And what does it mean for them, for their children, for their future generations in terms of legal status, in terms of access to rights and resources? Um, you know. And that's the reason that's why I'm interested in telling that story. I'm not, you know, what does it mean to live in for, for many years without a legal status? And um you know, the aim of the Pakistani state, from what I could see in my work, was to basically gradually push out as many folks as you could and as you can. Um, and many people just, you know, of course, were absolutely tired with this xenophobia and this racism that was being peddled out who many, many folks who could chose to leave. But then there are also those who remain and who have remained. And the question for us is, what will their status be? Why should we just peddle a... Uh, repatriation because actually it's not repatriation then isn't it it's deportation it's forced population transfer it's a violent act against people who've built their homes in places and who have literally transformed the cities in which you live and the privileges of which your state occupies and this is of course something that I'm discussing for all of us um, as Pakistani citizens and particularly those who are in positions of power and who have the capacity to shape material realities on the ground as well as discursive practices you know you are engaged effectively in a form of population transfer um, and that's what you're peddling and that's what you're trying to push. Pakistan has many migration stories we tend to fixate on 1947 but so much has happened since then and there are many multiple there are many migration stories and many migrants have built Pakistan not just those of 1947 who shouldn't, of course, ever be forgotten either in terms of the discourse of what it means to build a state and the lives lost. But there are folks who came afterwards and who have continued to come afterwards. Afghans have been the most probably sizable number. There are also Bangladeshi migrants. There are also those Rohingya migrants. There are pockets of Iraqi Somalis and others. You know, so the question for us to think about is, you know, can we imagine a future... um, of a multi-ethnic, multinational Pakistan, where there's a place for migrants, and of course, before that, of course, we also have to answer the very question of like, can we even create a multi-ethnic, multi-space um, for our own citizens, many of whom are also marginalised dramatically themselves, whether you know you are Baloch, Sindhi, Pashtun. From the former tribal areas, from the Saraiki belt, the working class, the peasants, and the poor. We all, you know, within the context of Pakistan, we're of course also subject to these forms of, of questions. And what I've hoped that I've tried to do with the book is to try and link in this question of Afghans to the broader questions of what's also happening within Pakistan. That's why I felt it incumbent to also include those other stories as well of, of Pakistani citizens of comparable class standings.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Is that where the title of the book comes from? Refugee Cities?
1: Yeah, yeah, it kind of uh, came, I mean, I yeah, that was basically, I was trying to kind of say, yeah, this is, these are cities built by uh, refugees and migrants and um, and certainly Peshawar and Karachi have that very more recent history and of course, you know, you would also say the same of of Lahore as well, of 1947, and Bindi as well, Rewal Bindi as well. Um, but many of the cities, if we look at it, even Peshawar, it's much less studied, but there were, of course, movements of large, even in 1947, there were movements of Hindu populations out of the city and who migrated then across um, the border to India. And there were also Muslims who came and settled in Bishawar from British colonial India, but that's perhaps something that's a bit less studied and less known within the discourse as well, but they also transform the city's
0: demographics in a way. As you bring our conversation to a close, what are you working on now as your current and subsequent research?
1: Um, At the moment, I am trying to work on, it will be on pause for a few months, but when I resume my work, I am working on a broader project that looks at surveillance Um, in South Asia, Mm. but also the broader kind of global south and looking at how it is that new computerized ID card systems, part of what I focus on in the book, but taking it to a broader South Asian level, are reshaping the borders that we've become so accustomed to um, post-1920s, post-1947, post-1950s, post-1970s as well. How is it that new technologies um, shape people's lives and also release people's lives with greater ferocity, because I feel like this moment um, there's a bit of a change taking place in um, with the introduction of new technologies. Some of the same is happening, but these new technologies seem to be quite a powerful force in disciplining people's rights and access and how governance is working. So, so that's partly one of the topics that I've kind of shifted track onto Um, But I'm still very, very much also working on cities and infrastructure and absolutely fascinated with how we examine access to material resources and infrastructure and what this can tell us broadly about how politics works.
0: Thank you so much, Sona. This has been such a delightful conversation and I wish you all the luck and success with these incredible forthcoming ventures. Thank you so much. To our listeners, I'm your host, Taiba Batul. I have been in dialogue with Dr. Sana Alemia today. Dr. Alemia is the assistant professor at Al Khan University's Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilization. Dr. Alemia is the author of Refugee Cities, How Afghans Changed Urban Pakistan, published by University of Pennsylvania Press 2022. I highly encourage our listeners to check out this incisive and brilliant work.